The TV fans are taking over. This is Across the Airwaves. Hi everybody, welcome to another episode of Across the Airways. The podcast dedicated to give weekly TV show episode reviews, along with news and opinions of the entertainment industry. I'm Dan Schmidt, your host, and with me is a guy who is wondering just exactly if he could put together a bunch of PS3s to make a supercomputer. Hi, co-host. Hey everybody, it's Nico, and welcome to Across the Airways. On this week's episode, we continue our coverage of the spring 2016 TV season with our review of an episode of Fear the Walking Dead, Castle, Person of Interest's season premiere, Orphan Black, and Michael's Supernatural review, along with our sitcom section including two episodes of New Girl and an episode of Big Bang Theory. Yes, exactly. And with that, we are going to first dive right into our news with Nico section this week. Because some exciting news about the Star Wars Han Solo solo film, the Jack Ryan TV series on Amazon, starring John Krasinski, and more about Castle's controversial season 9. <laughs> Star Wars Han Solo film, Alden Ehrenreich lands the lead in spinoff. We don't know if he'll shoot first, but he has the job. Alan Ehrenreich will play Han Solo in Disney's standalone Star Wars movie, confirming what Deadline reported exclusively three weeks ago. The film will cover events in Han Solo's life that took place prior to his appearance in the 1977 Star Wars, but no story details have been revealed. But before Disney's 2012 purchase of Lucasfilm, the Star Wars Expanded Universe line of books and comics featured several novels about the scoundrel's younger days. The Expanded Universe was officially decanonized in 2014, but elements of it have been borrowed in the Star Wars universe new canon, notably with certain plot points in Star Wars The Force Awakens. It's possible then that some of Solo's previously established backstory might make its way back into the Star Wars mainstream. The standalone Han Solo film, expected to be called Han Solo A Star Wars Story in keeping with this year's Rogue One, is in production under directors Phil Lord and Christopher Miller. Perhaps anticipating the confirmation of Aaron Reich's casting, Miller commemorated this week's May the 4th festivities by tweeting out the first official image from the production. Solo's iconic blaster. The Han Solo film, which Disney is slating for release on May 25th, 2018, will be directed, as I said, by the Lego movie team of Phil Lord and Christopher Miller. This picture will focus on Solo's days before he linked up with the Rebel Alliance. Ratings. Person of Interest returns up from year ago. Best Limitless Finale. CBS Person of Interest opened its fifth and final season on Tuesday night with 7.4 million total viewers and a 1.2 rating, according to the finals. Up in the demo from both its season four finale, 8.2 and a 1.1, and Limitless's week ago freshman finale, 5.6 and a 1.1, and off just a tenth from Limitless's season one average, 7.1 and a 1.3 demo. That said, Person of Interest was down 30 and 33% from its previous premiere and off 22 and 20% from its season 4 averages. Ratings Big Bang slips to 8 year low. The Big Bang Theory this Thursday led the night with 13.2 million total viewers and a 3.0 rating according to finals, while slipping 6 and 12% to 4 and 8 year lows, marking its smallest demo number since the season 1 finale. Not terrible numbers, the best of the night obviously, but still the lowest in 8 years. 
Castle's Nathan Fillon set for potential season nine after inking New Deal. Castle has retained its castle. Nathan Fillon has closed a deal to return to the ABC drama's ninth season. That is, if there is a ninth season. According to Deadline, ABC had until the close of business on Friday to decide whether or not to renew the series, until they arbitrarily decided to extend the deadline into next week. Fillon, of course, would be returning without leading Lady Stanakotic, whose exit was announced last month. Also, co-star Tamalia Jones was similarly let go. Both were reportedly axed for budgetary reasons. In addition to Fillon, original cast members Molly Quinn, Susan Sullivan, John Huertas, and Seamus Dever, as well as season 8 newbie Haley, played by Tox Olagonde, are all expected back. John Krasinski to star in Jack Ryan TV series for Amazon. John Krasinski is the next Jack Ryan. The Office alum has closed a deal for the title role in Jack Ryan the TV series based on the Tom Clancy popular CIA hero, which is set at Amazon through Paramount TV. The deal includes the former Lost duo of co-showrunner Carlton Cuse and writer Graham Rowland, along with Michael Bay's Platinum Dunes and Skydance Media, landed at Amazon with a series commitment and the intention to go straight to series. While there hasn't really been any official green light yet, the casting of Krasinski, who had been highly sought after by many TV casting directors, would likely tip the scales and help net a series order. The project reunites Krasinski with Michael Bay, who recently directed him in the 13-Hours feature. Conceived by Carlton Cuse and Roland, a former U.S. Marine. The show will be based on Clancy's novels, but is not a direct adaptation of the books as were the first Jack Ryan movies, but a new contemporary take on the character in his prime as a CIA analyst and operative using the novels as source material rather than telling the exact stories of the novel. And that's the news with Nico for this week. All right, so with all that controversial and exciting news out of the way, we're going to dive right into talking about another exciting episode of Fear the Walking Dead with more Trouble on the High Seas, entitled Captive. Alicia works to reunite her family, and Travis meets a familiar face. Meanwhile, Madison and Nick lead a charge to save their family against all odds. Hey guys, it's Nico, and I'll be doing a shortened version of the Fear of the Walking Dead discussion this week, as Dan and I are splitting duties with him recording over on Marvelverse doing a Captain America Civil War discussion, and me taking over the Fear the Walking Dead discussion this week. We are also looking for anyone interested in taking over this Fear the Walking Dead section, either entirely or in part, so if you are interested, please contact Dan or myself on Facebook or through the acrosstheairwaves at gmail.com email address. Now on to the episode. This week's major character of focus seemed to be Madison, who is about as close to Rick as we are going to get on this version of The Walking Dead. I've long complained that we did not have a true hero or character to relate to or root for on this series, and it has hampered my enjoyment or ability to get sucked into the story. They have definitely improved the Nick character to almost be that character for me this season, and the mystery around Strand has been some of my favorite stuff this season as well. This episode started to develop the Madison character into that Rick season 3 leader that took charge at the end of season 2 and ensured the survival of the group after the farm fell, and again when the prison fell at the end or midway point of season 4. Madison is finally showing she's the leader of this group. She took on Strand and his guys, set down the law with Nick, helped comfort Chris, and gave the marching orders to everyone when it seemed like there was going to be a fight. Madison is no Rick, of course, but at least now she seems to be on her way to being enough like him to lead our group in this series. 
Elsewhere on the boat, let's talk about my least favorite character, Chris, who is a complete idiot when it comes to watching their prisoner, Connor's brother Reed, this week. Dying from the injuries he suffered last week, Reed tells Chris that one, life sucks, and two, his family will eventually put him down, a statement echoed by Jack when he tells Alicia her family will abandon her. Chris kills him before he can turn, but he doesn't quite finish the job, no doubt prompting more viewers like myself to complain that these characters are pretty clueless compared to their Walking Dead counterparts, forcing Madison to counsel the would-be Slayer and cheer him up. Of course, Chris prematurely killing Reed means they can't trade him for Travis and Alicia, except they can. Madison, it must be said, has balls the size of boulders in this episode, especially when she pulls a Captain Kirk-worthy bluff and tells Connor and his people via radio that her promise of safe passage to Mexico was broken and that she wants to trade Reed for Travis and Alicia. Arriving along with a zombified Reed, his head hidden under a sack, she sets the walker onto his own brother, grabs Travis, and scoops up Alicia after she dives into the harbor in a pretty awesome stunt move, I might add. That was probably my favorite scene of the episode. Now, I have just a few random thoughts from the episode. There's not a lot of zombie action this week, and just one walker in the form of Reed, but what little there was made for the best parts of this episode. I'm all about zombies being used as weapons and eating their own team members, and it was awesome when Daniel impaled Reed into the cabin wall for safe, convenient storage. This was the first time on the series that I can remember we saw a walker used as a weapon. So why exactly didn't Connor's people bring guns to the hostage exchange? Or did they bring them and I didn't notice because they didn't decide to use them? It seems stupid of them if that's the case. I also have to say, Incredulous Lewis is a nice addition to the Abigail. He's so annoyed about everything and it's fantastic. The more the show can add different voices into the mix, the better. Even if it doesn't pay off long term, it's early. Keep experimenting because that's the kind of stuff I really like seeing. Daniel is hearing voices. That's something. It's obviously his conscience, but it was just subtle enough and out of the blue enough to catch me completely off guard. Travis's conversation with the woman from the plane, oh by the way, I told you that that was going to come back to bite them in the ass, seemed to make it look like Travis is still holding out hope that the world can be saved. That they don't have to be survival first and screw anyone that isn't part of our team minded. I just wonder how that will mesh with Madison's new leadership philosophy. Oh, and could Travis and the plain girl be on good enough terms after that talk that she might be a future ally? Well, that's about all the time I have for Fear the Walking Dead this week. Dan might be back next week or I might finish out the season doing these my by myself because of the Game of Thrones conflict. Either way, I'll be back next week for more Fear the Walking Dead. Now we're going to move on to Castle. Alright, so with that excitement got the love boat out of the way, we're going to dive right into a castle episode that could have been so much better than it turned out to be, especially when it came to Kagusta Purit. So let's talk now about the castle episode. Katana, much ado about murder. A movie star who transitioned to theater work is killed, so Castle and Beckett go behind the scenes to investigate what was going on in the actor's life. I thought this episode stuffed quite very well could have been two Castle mysteries get to the same episode. Could have left what could have been a very fun guest appearance from Firefly's Jewel State to be left on the cutting room floor, as she, much to her disappointment, was reduced to the murder of the weak character role. Vigo, did you think this was a wasted guest appearance for one of Nathan Fellin's former Firefly cast members? Oh, absolutely, Dan. Unfortunately, she was barely even in this episode. Yes. To be honest, they could have shot the majority of this episode something like six months ago and then just added the two scenes where Jewel State was in the concert hall as the director at, at a different time. That's how little she was involved in this episode. Why not have her be a major guest appearance? They had to know she was talented enough and Nathan and her have chemistry that they could have had much more fun with this guest appearance. Like the episode with the women who pretended to be the genie a few weeks back. Why not have a role like that for Jewel State? Or even better, have her be a rival crime novelist that kills someone and spends most of the 
the episode, fighting Rick for publicity for their new books, which are coming out at the same time. And in the end, Castle makes some offhanded comment about now her book is going to sell so many more copies than his because she actually murdered someone. It's such a waste, you know? I mean, there yeah. are so many different things they could have done to make her experience better on this, this series. Yeah, I like that idea, too. Kind of something about all that was kind of around those lines. It was more going towards the whole father daughter. Can I always say older brother, younger sister relationship that Nathan had because Mel Reynolds with Jewel State's character Kaylee at Firefly. Yep. That that's kind of what more I was thinking. Can I'll talk about that? But going back to the idea of too much being stuffed in the episode, I really couldn't find myself getting into the theater movie star genre angle of this mystery because they did play it up and up in this episode. But they got my attention with the El Chapo conspired story, kind of bringing out some really funny moments for Nathan. I just thought that mystery really should have been Castle getting kidnapped because the precinct tried to find him. Could Jewel State be brought in because a playwright or a screenwriter who was a young protege of Castle to made him realize he was possibly like a good father to Alexis when she was a baby or something like that. Do you think this episode could have been better if it went that direction? Yeah, Dan, I love your idea as well. Maybe even more than the idea I just mentioned about them being competitors and her being the murderer. I thought the El Chapo story was way better than the other mystery of the week. And to an extent, I'm glad it has the potential to be brought back with him escaping at the end of this episode, but still wanting Castle to write his biography and screenplay. That was great. I think that's going to open up or could potentially give us something better or give us something more in a in a future episode in the next couple of days. That would be fun. I mean, that'd be a fun way to grab things up. I mean, almost, you, they may leave it for like a season nine arc or something. I don't know. I don't know what they're going to do with that. Right, exactly. Again, we probably won't be talking about that, but it's, it's possible that could be there. All right, now, Brian being put in charge of his daughter's preschool play, because kind of a fun sidebar to have this episode, because I did love the crap that Casmanzino gave him about it, because I just love that those two guys kind of go at it in that way. But the storyline felt sort of forced into the episode at some points, because they had so much going on in the episode. But the scene with Kawaii was Shemus Dever's real daughter was pretty cute. So, I mean, it was a nice warm moment to this castle episode. But what do you think about it, Nico? Yeah, unfortunately, it was pretty worthless until the very end when we did get that heartwarming scene at the, you know, at the end of the episode and Espo was joining in and even knew all the moves despite giving Ryan so much crap for the entire episode. And you know Espo would be doing the same thing if he had a daughter given the opportunity. I, I agree, Dan, that this was probably would have fit better in an episode that wasn't already overcrowded with two mysteries or story arcs going on. So I think it was just kind of crammed in at the end. Yeah, and speaking of just that swarming moments, are the closing scenes where Becca and the cats are reflect on the case get home getting more and more difficult to watch? Because it's the time of seeing this once beloved TV power couple that we kind of swore by is sadly coming to an end, could possibly on terms that we absolutely do not want to see. You know, it is bittersweet knowing that these are the last times we'll see them, but they're really good, especially yeah. the past few weeks which makes them well worth it and not difficult for me to watch. Bittersweet for sure, but still fun, enjoyable, and ultimately pure Castle and Beckett moments. I think bittersweet's a better word. Yeah. I think that's the best word for it. And talking about bittersweet, I think it's time to dive into something that we've really missed talking about, but we're going to miss talking about after it's all wrapped up. I think this is a show that's going to end on a good side of note, just based on the way it started. So this is a show that I think CBS should be playing up their final season a little more, but they're kind of shoving it aside. But regardless of that, I think Jonathan and Nolan is going to come through because some great stuff like he's done throughout this entire series. So let's talk about the exciting return of person of interest for one final season with the episode entitled BSOD. <laughs> Thank you.
Recent Finch try to get the case containing the machine's damage code to the station so they can decompress it. Meanwhile, Fusco deals with the aftermath of Dominic and Eliza's shooting, while Root tries to dodge Decima's agents without the machine's help. I thought this was a very well done final season setup for Person of Interest, because it did a good job of highlighting everything for the series that's going to have a big part to play in this final round of episodes. Through Finch being reminded of his friend, Nathan, who was killed, got the Manhattan Ferry, prompting flashbacks, call about the loss of his fiance, get his relationship with his with the machine. Guys, almost like a Jonathan Kent's mentor figure. Kind of coming from Finch's relationship with his father who sadly passed away due to Alzheimer's. So Nico, do you agree this is a great setup for this show's final bow? Not just through the flashbacks, but with the voiceover from Root, which I assume will be a part of the series' final moments. As well as installing her back into her criminal element to escape Samaritan. Can this be a Reese and Finch-centric episode? Dan, I thought this was a brilliant episode. Not only did it, like you said, set up the entire season, but picked up essentially where the last season left off and naturally and organically reminded us of where everybody stands by incorporating those things into the story, the dialogue, and flashback seamlessly. I have watched a whole hell of a lot of television since the last time we saw Person of Interest or talked about it here on this show, but this episode reminded me of why it is one of my favorite shows on television and why I will miss it terribly in 12 more episodes when it leaves in what, like six weeks now? Yes. I had a huge smile on my face during the opening sequence of the show. To see these guys back and kick a butt, it was just awesome. Oh yeah. Guy I love the Reese character I always have. I'm stoked that it's back. Give a little bit at CBS that they brush this aside. Because a lot of people say this is the best, one of the best dramas on television. Can I agree with this? I think it's the best vigilante show of all time. Arrow was darn close. Because I thought they were equals. But after the way Arrow kind of went off the rails with relationships, good stuff, I would say President of Interest is the best because it maintained its integrity the whole time. Yeah, I like that idea, Dan. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's the truth. And can really, this is how you do dark superhero storytelling. DC Comics, just so you know, just so you're aware. And I know you had the Nolans for a while, but Snyder can't touch what these guys can do. They're, they're awesome. They're going back to Person of Interest. Did you, did you like this episode? Establishing a theme for this series surrounding the idea that can artificial intelligence being friendly or dangerous depends on the morality of its maker? Well, not just its maker, but its teacher as well. Essentially, Greer versus Finch. Despite Greer not being Samaritan's true creator, he was the teacher and taught it to be dangerous, while Finch taught the machine to be benevolent. So yeah, I, I do like that being set up as the main crux of this this final season and sort of what we're going to get out of the, the series as the ultimate message is that the technology itself is not the evil thing it's the people who use the technology and that's going to be a social commentary on the use of the technological advances that we see in our current environment and how they're being used to either subjugate their people or to free their people and that's kind of the decision you have to make about what you think the US government is doing with its spying on its own citizens and things of that nature. So I do absolutely believe that that's kind of the social commentary that's being brought up by this series. Well, and also we've also said that that Samaritan's a super villain, and the machine is a superhero. You know, the machine is, because CBS is Supergirl, before Supergirl, right. if you say, because they call her her. And I think that this plays to it greatly because every villain and hero has something that makes them who they are. Somebody impacts them to make them good or evil. Because that's what they're saying here. Because Fitch inspired good, because the machine is Greer inspired evil. You know, I mean, it, it's like Luke being inspired by Obi-Wan, who was a good person, good heroic person, and good Anakin being inspired by the Emperor. Yep. That kind of thing. So that's how that works. Now, moving forward, it looks like Samaritan, talking about the dark side, has some new tricks, because the evil machine can basically recruit civilian 
for criminal operatives through basically public safety alerts could bribery basically looks into people that could help them could use their social background could their situations in life to get them to do its bidding so Nico, what do you think of this new tactic for Samaritan could it's a creative scenario where the people Fitch and Reese go to help could turn on them because Samaritan entices them the right way yeah definitely in some cases yes but I still think that we will see something that I predicted and you thought was a brilliant idea way back in season one that eventually the machine and the person of interest team would need help and they would start to recruit some of the people that they had helped along the way to help them now. And we've seen that with some characters already throughout this series, but I think we may get even more of them this season, or at least I hope so. And those people would never be able to be corrupted by Samaritan. I do like the idea that Samaritan is so devious to put out fake Amber alerts, public safety alerts, and hack the media to turn normal citizens against the team thinking they are doing their civil service. It will be difficult for the team to survive if they are constantly under attack from every direction, and that's exactly what Samaritan's trying to do at this point. But I think bringing back characters from past seasons could be a great way to do a final season of the show. Oh, yeah. Because yeah, it's absolutely. that throwback to those great episodes that we really enjoyed. Like, that would be cool if they brought that judge back. Yep. That you've always wanted to come back for months and months and months. That would be really cool if they brought back the one students that Fitch had last season yep. to help with the computer chips. That was the finale, wasn't that? That was the finale. Yeah, that was the finale. So I think we're going to see a lot of that would, that would be fun. Okay, we're probably going to have to suffer through another Zoe episode. Well, maybe Samaritan will kill Zoe. <laughs> Yeah, you'd celebrate for that one. I would. Everybody else would be upset by that, but I would be I would be okay with that. Could pop a bottle of wine for that one. Now I was going to say, just thank goodness they gave us flashbacks to the killing of Dominic and Elias. Because I kind of had forgotten. I knew they got killed, but I kind of had forgotten what exactly happened there. Because the show had been off for so long. Because for a moment there at the beginning of this episode, I thought Shaw might be the killer. That she was the sniper up there. Until they showed us otherwise. So Nico, did you think this as well? And when is Shaw going to show up? I thought we'd get her at this episode and we'd have her every episode for the rest of the season. You know, I, I actually remembered that it was a sniper that took them out and it was a male. But I, it was good to see it again to remind everyone and so we could get a glimpse of the operative that took them out in case it was important to recognize him later. I'm not sure it will be, but I did want to see his face just so it's in my mind so the next time if we see somebody like that, we could be, oh, that's the guy that took out Dominic or maybe that's the guy that took out Dominic. Now, as for Shaw, the best part about this series being off for so long was that Sarah could take all the time she needed with her baby and still be in the full season. My guess is we will see Shaw soon, but she may be a little different than we remember because they were testing out those neural impulses plants on her the last time we saw her, so she may be brainwashed the next time we see her. And that's why I think you were thinking she could have been the shooter, but I think it's it was a little too early in this story for her to be the sniper that killed Elias and Dominic. I think Fusco's going to have a big part to play in that story. I hope so. I think he's going to go after her and try to redeem her because, remember, she did save his son right. for being killed, so he owes her for that. Oh, yeah. So that, that could be a big part. Plus, they kind of had a pretty good relationship with each other. We even thought it was going to get romantic until they kind of changed things up with the prices with Rudy Good Root's going to have a big part to play in that as well, fighting her. For sure. But Nico, were you getting the sense that Fusco's life could really get put in danger this season? Is it making you think Fitch or Reese better tell him what the heck is going on? Or he's really going to get killed? You know, I kept wanting to see Kevin have a scene where Fusco just snapped and told <laughs> Reese off and basically told him he needed to know what was going on now or he was done. Damn the consequences. And maybe he still will do that. But I agree, Fusco needs to be a full member of the team now and know what's going, what he's getting into. No more of this ignorance to keep him safe. Nobody's safe if Samaritan's in charge, so he might as well know what he's up against. 
So they did a good job of having to keep approaching that subject because Fusco was just like, I don't want to know. Yeah. But now it's gotten so out of control. He's like, okay, I need to know now. Yeah, I agree. Like, I'm not going to survive. You don't tell me what's going on. Yeah, that's exactly where we're at now. So I, I think it, they've done a great job in keeping him in the dark. But now it's time for him to come out of the dark and, and realize what's actually going on. Because especially if, if Shaw shows up with neural implants, got all this wacky sci-fi stuff because been done to her, he's going to be like, okay, you got to tell me what's going on. Yeah, exactly. Like, this doesn't make sense. Like, I got almost because a cop he almost needs evidence of what's going on here. Kind of like Barnes, God Gotham, where he was the police captain that cut his head in the sand, and then crap went sideways. And he's like, okay, I need to know what's going on. Yep. Can't believe you, I need to do something about this. Now, I was kind of hoping that that Russian crime lord was going to be our, like, on the streets, big bad this season, because I feel like the show always needs to maintain that aspect, because it's where the series started. But, you know, do you think this type of villain is just not possible anymore, since we were kind of at the end of the series? Because America now has some new tactics, and also there's less episodes. Yeah, exactly, Dan. I think Samaritan's getting rid of the organized crime aspect of the streets, but will allow some petty crime to happen to just justify its own continued need to be there to stop terrorist attacks and help stop major crimes and things like that. I think a crime boss just doesn't work anymore for the series because Samaritan is there working against them and essentially took out the heads of two major crime syndicates in the city in the same one moment, you know. So I think we'll have enough to deal with in the short season with Samaritan and too many other big bads would just bog down the story and make it too complicated or too muddled for this shortened season. Plus, could anyone really live up to Elias in our minds? I, I think it would be doing Elias a disservice. Dominic got close, though. Oh, yeah, Dominic yeah. versus Elias was a great story because it kept Elias part of that story and part of Dominic's rise. Yes, that was good stuff, and... I, I think with 12 episodes, we don't need it. I think that was to keep the full season story going. But I think this is going to be the most consistent story. Could maybe one of the best arcs of the show next to that end of the HR storyline where Carter was killed. Right. Because it's 12 episodes. I think we're going to get their best stuff from them because they don't have to have filler episodes. Okay, now, this show is very good. Could making the filler episodes have relevance. Right. But last season, they kind of lost their momentum a little bit on doing it. Because I think that's why we are grand right now with this show. But I don't consider that as a failing. I just consider that as a, this is a show designed to go for five years, and that's what we're going to get. I mean, they, they built it with an ending, and that's the way they should do it, and we're not going to get Supernatural where it went on way too long than it should have. Right, exactly. Now, if any of your parents said video games are bad for the world, you could tell them that they're wrong. The bunch of PlayStation 3s were able to restore the machine to eventually save the entire planet from Samaritan. I like this because it kind of fit the literature thing of the most unlikely source being able to overthrow the ultimate evil. Plus, it set up the reviving the machine as a team effort, since it gave the opportunity for Reese to help after feeling useless the entire episode. So, coming up with the idea of using liquid nitrogen to cool down the PS3s. Nico, do you think it was clever how the writers came up with this to make reviving the machine a family effort? Can, can we just put all of our buddies' PS3s together to create a supercomputer? Or is that just science fiction? No, actually, Dan, it's 100% legit. Well oh, before... So. It was before the update something like 3.2x of the PS system when they took away the ability to load other OSs onto the PS3. But yeah, a bunch of computer science professors created cheap supercomputers using PS3s. Before the update, you could load Linux onto your PS3, daisy chain them through their Ethernet cables, and create a supercomputer with as few as eight or as many as 1760, like the US Air Force recently did, to create the 33rd fastest supercomputer in the history of the world. Essentially, for $4,000, you could buy eight PS3s at their original price and other hardware and create a supercomputer that would outperform any computer on the retail market up until about 2014, at which point a 64 core processors became available to the public that could outperform the eight PS3s 
three supercomputer daisy chained. Now, if you went more than the eight, then you could still outperform what's available on the, the market right now. Part of the reason why this structure works so well for gaming and essentially to house the machine on this series was the cell microprocessor chip that was designed to work almost like 30 separate CPUs. Essentially, a single PlayStation performs like a cluster of 30 PCs at the price of only one. Multiply by the thousands of PS3s the Air Force used in their supercomputer and you get the processing power of 500 trillion floating point operations per second, or other words, the ability to do 500 trillion calculations in a single second. Pretty freaking sweet, and more than enough to help the machine do what it needs to do. Yeah, I thought it was a cool thing, because I figured they wouldn't have done it unless they researched it because the research because the technology to come up with stories on this show has just been top notch the really cool thing about the daisy chained ps3 cluster is that one it's it's cheaper it, to build a similar structure it would about be about ten thousand dollars per unit as opposed to the four hundred dollars it is for a ps3 so if you were to put together an eight units in servers it would cost you know about eighty thousand dollars as opposed to the four thousand it costs to build the ps3 one so the the cost is significant significantly somewhere about five to ten percent somewhere in that range of the cost but also the the amount of energy and, and electricity that it takes to run them is one tenth the electricity so to run the ps3 system with the machine in it is actually going to be significantly less of a footprint for the team and it'll make them dip more difficult to find for samaritan than if they were running on traditional server hardware so that's also an added bonus that they probably took into consideration when thinking about building this daisy chain supercomputer and Ruth would be that smart to know that. Oh yeah, absolutely. Exactly. This was the way that hackers created supercomputers in the late aughts and early uh, 2010s. So that would make sense why they had the leg around and it was the right version to give that Russian guy's hideout because they were essentially hackers. Yeah, and if you notice, they weren't the slim versions of the PS3. They were the original bulky versions because those are the only yes, versions that would work. The one I'm looking at right now. Yeah, the one, I, the one I have on my desk right next to me uh, sitting on top of my PS4. Let's make a supercomputer, Nico. Let's do it. It was, yeah, it was just very, it was a, it was a clever idea, good, perfect, and again, I think this show, I need to watch it out, but I think this show and Mr. Robot, kind of a rivalry to each other, kind of technology stuff. I think Mr. Robot is probably more accurate on the hacking version, and the hacking story, yeah. and making that realistic, and Person of Interest is very realistic on what is available, what is possible, with a little bit of a sci-fi spin on it. So, I do think they are, if you like Person of Interest, go watch the first season of Mr. Robot, it is amazing. It was one of the best shows on television last year, and I think it's just absolutely brilliant, and I, I, I'm looking forward to the second season very, very much. All right, so with that, speaking of fun sci-fi shows that make you think, we're going to bring Nico's dad Dylan to talk about this week's episode of Orphan Black, entitled From Instinct to Rational Control. <laughs> Sarah forms an alliance with former enemies in hopes of getting to the head of Neolution. Elsewhere, Allison orders Felix and Donnie to invade a Neolution fertility clinic, and Susan Duncan leaves Rachel to make a devastating decision. What a week of near revelations and bigger questions from our clone club. The fourth episode of this already amazing season finally gave us a bit more insight into the mysterious MK, her motivations, and showed us the whole other side of Team Hendrix, but in the best way. Oh, and then there was that whole thing with Dr. Leakey's head, the maggot bot, 
and a change of scenery for Helena, and we finally learned about Helsinki. But first up, let's talk about MK, or as we found out in this episode, actually Vera, the clone who's held the proverbial purse strings this season when it comes to information about Neolution, about Helsinki, about all things Beth, what she knew and didn't know, got a bit more light shed on her in her quest to take down Topside, using some fancy hacker gear, and hey, how cool was it that they actually yeah. used real Linux and recognizable true hacker software on screen for a TV show? MK was able to track down both the identities of Marion Bowles, dead apparently, and Ferdinand, after Sarah gave her the message Rachel sent to him through Charlotte. This, of course, set off a series of events that nearly got Sarah, Dizzy, Mrs. S, and Ferdinand all killed. Man, oh man, MK is one secretive, anxious lady with vengeance on the brain. Her burn-it-to-the-ground methods are admirable, though, and I'm sure Mrs. S would heartily appreciate, not that we blame her, as it was revealed near the end of the episode while holding Ferdinand hostage in Beth's apartment thanks to a pressure-sensitive bomb wired to the chair and a text that was sent from Sarah's phone, MK was one of those clones targeted in Helsinki, only she escaped with barely more than scars, a sizable one on her right cheek for sure, and another apparently right in her heart after Nikki, her friend and another clone, was murdered by Ferdinand. So dad, now that we know what Helsinki was, did it live up to the hype we gave it? Were you excited we finally got one major mystery from season one solved, or were you disappointed with how neatly it was all explained? And what did you think of MK's backstory? Also, now that MK has all of Ferdinand's money, where does she go? Does she go after Susan Duncan on her own? I like backstory, uh, MK's backstory, and and no, I, I was disappointed with the Helsinki story being wrapped up just too neatly and tied up in a little red bow. MK and Helena could really be a two-man or two-woman SEAL team someday and could really mess up some Neolitionists if they got the opportunity to go in and, and go wholehearted at them. Yeah, all bets are off. We're, we're sure it's only a matter of time before MK finds Rachel and Susan and does, does whatever needs to be done, which, full disclosure, may mean death for both of them or maybe just Susan, maybe just Rachel. After all, Dizzy did mention that he thought, given the right set of circumstances, he believed MK could be dangerous. Those per bombs sure seemed to point in that direction. And speaking of Dizzy, it was really surprising that Sarah told him about the whole clone thing, which had me wondering. I wonder if Dizzy's stuff this season was supposed to be played by Dario, I mean Cal, but he was too busy searching for Danny over on Game of Thrones. After all, he was a bit of a tech nerd and created a lot of crazy science stuff we didn't really know much about. And we're especially curious to know what his stake in all of this is, since Dizzy mentioned offhandedly that he had people involved in this too. Oh yeah? Like who, Dizzy? What do you think, Dad? I'm not really sure who his people are, but some of his friends could be the Castor military guys or some of that group or even some of the monitors. They, it's just really kind of interesting. Dizzy seemed to be a former military guy, ex-Vietnam vet type guy that's burned out on war and all the, all that. He seems to be one of those guys that is out there to get some revenge too. Yeah, he kind of does have that feeling like he was involved in signal, signal intercept or, you know, tactical computer yeah. stuff for the military. He does, does have that vibe and kind of has that look of uh, a war-weary soldier. So yeah, I, I actually think that's a good good idea. Now last week we mentioned that we had theories about Felix and his biological sister. Sarah even mentioned that we didn't know whether or not she was a neolutionist plant. Can we trust that she is not a monitor introduced for Felix? It, I mean, that just seems like that's the most obvious thing. Dad, I know you had some theories on this. What were those? Yeah, last week I was pretty sure that she was a plant and that she was Felix, going to be Felix's monitor. It's just so funny how she just showed up uh, and it was so easy for her to, uh, Felix to find her. Most tries to find a biological families are really complicated and just for her to just show up was just too much of a coincidence and way too easy. I bet you find that it's some diabolical plot to mess with the sisterhood. Just don't know what it is yet. Just like the, the show Fringe, every week we seem to get answered one question and we get four more new ones that we have no idea what they are for. Yeah, exactly. Now, I know that things are a lot easier nowadays when you can put in, you can just submit your DNA and they match it and if some 
someone that has similar DNA or, a, you know, a 50% match for a single parent or something like that, then there are a lot easier to, to put people together, especially since the world has shrunk so much more now that we've introduced social media and Did social you? media yeah. to the DNA search for biological siblings and, and, and parents and things of that nature. So I do, I do believe that that's not really where I see the coincidence of it, but I do think that it could have been manipulated. They had a monitor in there for Felix, and once they saw that, they just matched him to somebody that they could make into a monitor. Yeah, so, that sounds pretty real. Yeah. So, Dad, you, you and I nailed the crap out of the whole maggot bot theory when we discussed that we thought they were involved in gene therapy. We also theorized that possibly mind control, but I haven't ruled that out yet. Essentially, we learned that the maggot bots introduce foreign DNA like a gene therapy delivery system that edits your genes. So now, the mystery of why Sarah and Helena were able to conceive has all but been solved in my mind, and the maggot bot fixed any of their mutated messed up DNA. Because if you'll remember, the EMTs noted that Sarah didn't have a scar, indicating that she wasn't the one they were looking for, but it also indicated that she and Helena possibly maybe have had the, these maggot bots in them since birth. So a few questions come up with that. Who is putting these maggot bots into the clones? Because if it is truly what has helped Sarah and Helena, why not put them in all the clones to cure the disease and the process that is killing them all? Dad, do some of the neolutionists know something that Susan Duncan doesn't? Or is she keeping the cure away from Rachel to collect more data points like Rachel decided not to help or attempt to cure Charlotte? You know, I think this is a leaky program that he was working on off book from the Duncans. Duncans were all about cloning just for cloning's purposes and you get that right. And they were all about the science. Leakey was into this neolutionist stuff and and about evolving the human form into a new form of humanity. And I think he was looking for, he saw the, the problems that the Duncans were having and his tech group came up with these maggot bots that could help solve that problem. But he didn't want to give it to the Duncans. He wanted to control that. I think that the clones can procreate are, and now they are the next evolution of the process and are evidently creating a new super sensitive ESP reading gen, next generation in Sarah's daughter. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Now, we also know that Sarah wants that maggot bot out of her, you know, and she... <laughs> Wouldn't you? Yeah, she, you know, but if she if they do that, there's a pretty good chance that she could become really sick like Cosima without it. And what a double-edged sword that is. Should we get one of those into Cosima? I'm actually thinking yes. Maybe they implant the one that they have from Leaky into Cosima to see if they can, once they figure out how to crack the gene therapy so that they can do their own gene therapy into Cosima and save her. I think that might be where it's going to go. I hadn't thought about that. But to know that for certain, we need to learn more about this Edie Cho character and how she's connected to the clone game. She's clearly somebody big. I think she was on Oprah, Cosima said at one point. And her desire to create stronger, smarter babies sounds innocent mix, mixed with messed up enough to make me think she's possibly been pulling the strings this whole time. Or, like you mentioned, Dad, she's probably in on that Leaky thing and that this was a hijacked portion of the experiment for Leaky and his neolutionists. Because mainstream reproduction therapy is no doubt a ma major moneymaker, but there's got to be something more to it. And really, the clones are probably the perfect double-blind study. They don't know their clones, but by giving some of the maggotbots to, to some and not to others, they can figure out what exactly this tech can and cannot edit and what it can and cannot cure. So I do think that that's part of why it was part of the part of the experiment, but their own separate experiment, collecting separate data points. Mm -hmm. Now, as usual, we'll end the Clone Club discussion this week with Team Hendrix. And this week, Team Hendrix plus Felix was amazing. Donnie and Felix as a gay couple was great, especially Donnie chewing up the scenery and really hamming it up as the as a gay guy. The best part of this episode's Team Hendrix portion was that it not only was hilarious, which it was, but it totally advanced the overall story arc for once as well. We learned all about the Brightborn treatments, Edie Cho, and how this all might revolve around the clones. 
But of course, Dad, the best part of the entire sequence was the old Air Italia phone sex scene. I know you love Team Hendrix and their shenanigans. What were your favorite parts? And do you have any theories about how Evie Cho ties back to the Neolutionists, Lita, and the whole Clone Club experimentations beyond what we already discussed? Well, first off, I think that Cho might be the eventual tie back to the Lita program and that and that specialized off-book program. Yeah. And this will advance the clone group to a viable procreation unit that could possibly give us a new master race with specific, what do we call it in the the other show, Inhuman Powers. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's a master race. And, it, and you know, it almost sounds something like a Hitlerist-type uh, breeding group. So that's got me, you know, that's my conspiracy theory for that. As far as the uh, Hendrix and the phone sex, gosh, Donnie was just way over the line on, on gay. <laughs> and and then it might be that there's a Neolitionist-type with a maggot bot that's going to be coming after uh, Felix, in my mind. So I, I don't know. It's just there's way too much good stuff coming on on the show, and I'm, I'm afraid we have, what, six, four more to go? Uh, well, this was four, and, and I believe this is a ten. So it's six more. Yeah, ten. So- Ten run. It could be a thirteen. So we okay. could have we could have as many as nine more to go. So we're just getting into the meat of the show then. Yeah. For this season. Yeah. You know, you you brought up neolutionists and their connection to Hitler. Neolutionists definitely has a very eugenics feel, yeah. and and that definitely scares all of us and should. The Chinese are are picking up with some of that eugenics stuff and doing a lot of experiments on their population. Some with their knowledge, some without, and doing a lot of it in the labs as well. It's 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 scary stuff, and we we need to keep an eye on that so that you know. And could that be a Cho reference? Uh, maybe it <laughs> might it might be, but well, I think that's all the time we got for the Clone Club this week. Thanks again, Dad, for joining us. We'll catch up next week as we jump into the fifth episode of this fourth season of Orphan Black. See you next time, guys. Thanks. All right, thank you for coming in, Bill, to help with that section. And now we're going to bring in Michael to cover this week's God-filled Supernatural episode that proved a theory many Supernatural fans have had for years. Hey guys, Michael J. Petty here to talk to you about this week's episode of Supernatural, Season 11, Episode 20, entitled Don't Call Me Shirley. This week's Supernatural was completely essential to the series as a whole for many reasons. It A, confirmed Eric Kripke's statement after Swan Song in Season 5 that Chuck Shirley, aka Carver Edlund, is indeed Supernatural's version of God. B, it brought God back into the story. And C, it allowed Metatron some sort of redemption and gave a way for the brothers to finally defeat definitely their biggest foe yet. Here's the thing, for me personally, I hate the way Supernatural has portrayed God, and this episode has only made me hate it worse, or more, I should say. Uh, If you want to know who God actually is, go read the Bible, please. Otherwise, you're out of luck if you expect Supernatural to actually show God for who he is. But regardless of my own personal beliefs, this episode of Supernatural is really going to take the series one step forward. I mean, regardless of that, it was good. It was good to see Chuck again, and I'm kind of refusing to call him God at this point, because quite frankly, he's not, but according to the show he is. But it was good to see Chuck actually do something in this episode and decide to return, not just kind of show up for a cameo like he did last season. Um, In fact, this episode felt a lot like um, the season 9 episode in which Metatron took control over the show show, show, and used the trickster, aka Gabriel the Archangel, to bring Castiel back to a place of rebellion against him, as in Metatron. So overall, this story, this week's story was very effective. It's also very interesting to see the relationship between Chuck and Metatron, uh, especially given now that God, quote-unquote, God is now Chuck and formerly Angel Metatron is now human. 
It was also very fascinating to see Metatron be the one to bring God out of the darkness. I mean, we kind of heard in season eight, at the end of season eight, that Metatron was the scribe of God. He was the angel in heaven who was closest to God, even though, according to Supernatural, God loved Lucifer the best, something Chuck adamantly denies in this episode. Um, But nevertheless, it was very fascinating to see a character like Metatron find some sort of divine redemption in the whole concept of bringing Chuck back into the battle, even to the point where Metatron was actually begging on the human's behalf. He isn't even worried about the angels at this point. He realizes they've made their choices, and he isn't really worried about demons either. Metatron is actually worried about humanity at this point in time, and is on the Winchester's side, regardless of his countless tussles with them before. And now let's get to those two brothers. Finally, Sam and Dean faced off against the latest version of Amara's rabid virus, and Sam got infected once again. But we also find out that Dean is actually immune, and this is most likely due to his connection with Amara and his former um his former placeholder of the mark of cain uh, nevertheless dean calls out to amara in rage but instead the amulet aka the samulet from the first five seasons returned in sam's pocket as chuck healed everyone infected and even brought back those who died because of the infection to life and now he's returned to help the winchesters face off against his evil sister so i guess we'll have to wait and see how it all turns out There is one thing that Chuck did say to Metatron, though, about the amulet that I found really interesting, and he said, you'll never guess where this has been this whole time. Now, we know in Season 5, Dean got rid of it. He got rid of it for two reasons. He, A, didn't believe it could help find God because he wasn't going to look to God for help anymore during the apocalypse, and B, he got rid of it because of his confrontations with Sam throughout that season. In the 200th episode, he later revealed that he doesn't need an amulet to help him remember why he loves his brother, but it looks like Sam has kept on to it this whole time. And now we don't know if Chuck just put it back in Sam's pocket and had taken it out before, or if it had just been lying in some trash can and some garbage dump somewhere this whole time. I choose to believe that Sam kept it even after Dean threw it away because he never gave up hope that God would be listening. That's my opinion. I don't know how it's going to actually turn out, but it sounds pretty good to me. (laughs) Overall, this episode was very pivotal to the post-Kripke era supernatural, and at the end of the day, will at least in part be responsible for explaining some of the show's deepest mysteries, and hopefully Hopefully we'll unravel some more going forward. Thanks, guys, and I'll see you all next week. All right, thank you, Michael, for that. You're the perfect guy to cover that episode because I had thought of you the whole time, especially since that was a big theory. You wanted to be true that that episode addressed. So thanks for that, Michael. Now we're going to get into talking about another double dose of New Girl with the episode Dress Can Return to Sender. Jess rushes to get alterations to Cece's bridal dress done on time. Schmidt struggles to keep his wedding workshop a secret at work, and Nick has trouble asking Reagan to be his date to the nuptials. Meanwhile, Winston and Allie attempt to keep co-workers in the dark about their relationship. Later in the second episode, Jess is introduced to Sam's female best friend. Nick worries that Gavin will leave Schmidt disappointed again, and Winston isn't happy about someone's reaction to a birthday present. Alright, so what I'm going to say about the first episode of New Girl is that the the workshop that Schmidt had in the bathroom, the bathroom. Her work was very funny stuff. Got 
great by other joke that he works with all the women. So that was fun. And Jets getting forced to be the temp. That was funny. And picking up the kids and stuff. The thing really what made me laugh about the episode was Winston at the precinct and some of the wacky characters there. Like the nice guy that was uh, going to keep their secret and then wanted like, because it was like $4,000 for it or something. Got then the sergeant that kind of had the hots for Winston and wanted a video of him clicking a popsicle. That was pretty funny. And that was just for those wacky random characters. You've got a lot from New Girl. Guys, for the other episode, I have to say that was my favorite. The second episode was my favorite out of the two. Got the bird shirt thing. Good Sam was pretty hilarious. Got how angry Winston got about that. I also felt the episode was quite emotional, kind of heartfelt for an episode of New Girl with the whole letter thing with Sam. Good just having to make that decision and kind of the whole romance aspect with that. Could the same went with Schmidt's relationship with his dad. Could how sad that was and how Nick really had to pick up the pieces for that. I really thought there was some good emotional stuff in the story that made things different but didn't take us too outside of the box because we did have some funny moments like when Nick and uh, Gavin, Schmidt's father, had that discussion in front of the elevator. So with that, I'm going to lead things over to Nico saying, will you share your thoughts with about this week's new girl, Nico? Will you? Will you share your thoughts? Will you do it? Yeah, my favorite comedic moments from the first episode were Nick's crazy burner phones. Not the whole Reagan part, just that he had like 30 of them going. Yeah. I also love Winston's police captain coming on to him and asking him if he would take a picture of him with a popsicle. So random and raunchy. Classic new girl. It was pretty funny that Cece's dress was perfect inside out. Now, maybe I'm spoiled because one of my best friends, Elspeth, was just married last weekend and she looked so beautiful in her dress. But even inside out, that dress has nothing on my girl's dress. In the second episode, I love Nick thinking he'd make millions as a French whore after taking a French whore's bath with Jess's towel. I enjoyed the throwback to the almost barfing when finding out about Jess and his dad kissing when Schmidt dry heaved at even the mention of the incident. Of course, I love the flashbacks of Fat Schmidt and Grunge Nick from college. God, I love those scenes. I didn't have any ice cream, so I just shook up some milk. Also, how great is it when Jess realized that Sam's friend was in love with him and she said, balls. <laughs> I also love Nick's random hidden booze under the floor. And finally, Nick and Schmidt's dad scene at the elevator was amazing. Wasn't it, Dan? Wasn't it? President Nico? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Good. Please do not bring back Megan Fox. Please. Yeah, they don't need her. Bring back Coach. Let the wedding be Coach's return. Don't let Megan Fox steal his thunder. That's all I have to say to that. Agreed. So with that, we're going to go into a Big Bang Theory episode that got really low ratings, but I really enjoyed it. I thought it was pretty funny. There was some great lines and stuff in it, especially a good color gag with Raj. So let's talk about the episode entitled The Line Substitution Solution. All started with a Big Bang when Sheldon decides he'd rather go to a movie screening than hang out with Amy, he hires Stuart to spend the day with her. Meanwhile, Leonard's mother visits and Penny just can't seem to connect with her. I think what I enjoyed about this episode was just the whole Stuart waiting in line gag. I thought this is one of the better uses of Stuart we've had this season because we've kind of complained about how they've made him a pervert or the nerds of the show are kind of making fun of him. I mean, it was kind of like a fellow geek backing up a geek with waiting in line and I thought it was funny how he kind of blew up at Sheldon for Amy. That was that's pretty funny stuff. But I also enjoyed the the stick chair or whatever that uh, Garage was sitting on and the Stuart's line about Tigger. That was pretty funny stuff. Got to laugh there. Got to end Sheldon's whole speech about cutting in line. Got throwing in the classic, you know, no cuts, no butts, no coconuts. Good stuff. Got to do that. Good. So I thought that was all very just funny stuff. And God, that was a good Big Bang Theory episode. Given a lot of people didn't watch it. So what were your thoughts, Nico? Yeah, Dan, my favorite comedic moments from this episode were Sheldon and Penny's flashcard quiz session where Sheldon was quizzing Penny on science things and Penny was quizzing Sheldon on pop culture things. I thought that was, that was interesting and it was fun. Sheldon's belief that the golden rule of lines is no cuts, no butts, no coconuts. I also love Leonard 
Shepard's insult of Raj's chair by saying, so when the aliens brought you back, they just left the probe in? That was a, that was a good line as well. That was good stuff. I got that this is a very funny episode. Got another why a lot of people didn't watch it. Yeah, I don't know. So, I enjoyed that. That was good. And uh, I think we had a pretty good episode. So, good time into the closing and tell everyone what's going on next week. Schedule's pretty similar, but yeah, I want you to listen closely. Just based on the number of episodes, you need to watch these shows to keep up with us. Yeah, on our next episode, Dan and I will continue our reviews of an episode of Fear the Walking Dead, Castle, two episodes of Person of Interest, as it now goes Monday and Tuesday night. Fred. Bill and my review of Orphan Black, and Michael's Supernatural review, along with our sitcom section, including the penultimate and season finale of New Girl, an episode possibly two of Modern Family, because I think we missed one this week, but I'm not entirely sure. Yes, we did. Yes, we did. Okay. And the Big Bang Theory as well. So we'll double up on that Modern Family to get you all caught up. Also, DC Nation will continue with Gotham, Flash, Arrow, and DC Legends of Tomorrow, so make sure to rejoin us for the DC Nation podcast as well. We'll also be sure to keep an eye out for Dan, Nikki, and my review of the third episode of Season 6 of Game of Thrones on our Thronecast podcast. Finally, be sure to keep an eye out for Dan, Nikki, and Joshua doing the Marvelverse podcast and their coverage of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. all season long, as well as a special episode dealing with the Captain America Civil War movie as well, coming out this this coming week or, or soon after, so yes. keep an eye out for that as well. But for now, we're going to roll our pre-recorded closing. Good editor across the airways podcast, good network website, across the airways.com. Again, that's across the airways.com. You can check out all of our podcast shows, available as their own individual programs, get the iTunes store, get Google Play store. Guys, for the podcast shows, cut our network. We have the DC Nation podcast, located at dcnation.acrosstheairwaves.com. Again, that's dcnation.acrosstheairwaves.com, which reviews popular DC Comics-related TV shows and movies. There's also the Marvelverse podcast, located at marvelversepodcast.acrosstheairwaves.com. Again, that's marvelversepodcast.acrosstheairwaves.com, which reviews Marvel Comics-related TV shows and movies. And we also have Thronescast, our podcast dedicated to reviewing episodes of HBO's Game of Thrones, which is available at the website thronescast.acrosstheairwaves.com. Again, that's thronescast.acrosstheairwaves.com. In addition to these programs, you can listen to the original Across the Airwaves podcast, which is accessible at acrosstheairwaves.com, which reviews TV shows not related to superheroes, core Game of Thrones, like The Walking Dead, Doctor Who, Star Wars Rebels, Supernatural, and more, including sitcoms such as The Big Bang Theory and The Muppets. Also, you can listen to Across the Airwaves, the DC Nation podcast, Thronescast, the Game of Thrones podcast, and the Marvelverse podcast, got the mixed radio station, code by Jack Stifle, Stitcher Radio, or if you use Apple devices, download the podcast box app. Got if you're on a Windows or Android device, you can download our apps from the Amazon Marketplace. Got the Windows Marketplace, got a regular Windows or Windows Phone app. Got for how you can contact us to give your own listener feedback, got the TV shows we review, provide suggestions on how we can improve your podcast listening experience, or just want to say, do you like what we're doing? Email us at acrosstheairwaves at gmail.com. Again, that's acrosstheairwaves at gmail.com. Comments on our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter, got across their waves. There's no thought in there. It's just across their waves. Join our circle, got Google Plus, or leave us a voicemail by calling 773-809-3363. Again, it's 773-809-3363. Also, when sending us an email, please mention which podcast show you're directing the message to. Give the subject line. Give you our sending us listener feedback you want us to read. God, the air. I would also recommend that you check out our YouTube page, which features trailers for upcoming movies and television events. Along with this content, the ATA YouTube channel is a great source for panels from past Comic-Con, and it will be a great resource to find videos related to the Comic-Con taking place in San Diego this summer to go along with our Comic-Con special. Alright, so once again, for a fabulous GTA podcast host, Nikki Amy, Woo Kim, Joshua Burkwright, Steve Nastro, and the great Michael J. Petty, I'm Dan Schmidt, and I'm Eagle Rustic. Gonna tell our next episode. We will catch you on the
the airways. See you, everybody. Have a great week. And come to subscribe and come to return of the machine this week because we love talking birds of the big trust. See ya. And all the people you see coming by to save you, you make believing on in your mind. Your eyes are holy rolling, looking, beating, knocking. The ceiling gets closer to you all the time. This ain't a while now, they all been put down. You ain't dead, you fled to die closer to the shore. This ain't a while no Now return to our regularly scheduled program.